It is providential that our brother earlier read Revelations chapter 7, or Revelation chapter 7. I'm actually going to be spending a little bit of time in Revelation later on. But if you would open with me for the moment to Philippians. The book of Philippians, and we're going to be dealing primarily with chapter 3. Chapter 3, and I've broken the message down into essentially three main points. We're, we're going to be dealing with the context first and foremost, but first you have the Christian life simplified, Paul's example of straining forward, and a warning for complacent Christians. But before we read the text, I do want to Go before the Lord one more time in prayer. Heavenly Father, we we thank you for another opportunity to gather in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, Father, I just ask that your word would be preached with power and you would ultimately fill our need of you this hour. Lord, come and, and move amongst us. We desire to hear from you today. Lord, preacher and listener alike, Father, we're needy. We can't do this apart from your help. We need your Holy Spirit's illuminating and enlightening power to take hold of your word and to drive it home. So, Lord, I I ask, please, help us today. In Christ's name I ask, amen. So, we're... We're going to be looking primarily at a few verses down the line, but let's go ahead and open up here in verse 1. The Apostle Paul says, Finally, my brothers, although this finally is not used in the same way in which we would use it, he actually says, finally, again, I believe, in chapter 4. So this isn't as though he's concluding the message, but that there is a change of topic here. Rejoice in the Lord to write the same things to you. The same things is no trouble to me and is safe for you. There's safety in reminders here. The Apostle Paul is starting this letter, or starting this chapter out rather. He's starting this change of thought, this change of topic, and he's letting the brethren know look, First and foremost, this is very likely something that you've already heard from me before. To write the same thing. So he's writing something he's written in the past and he's saying it's no trouble for me and it is safe for you. What we want to take away from here is that the Apostle Paul is emphasizing right out of the gate the danger of forgetting. The danger of having the truth, of being told the truth, of having it up here but forgetting. Time and distraction in this life and and just our day-to-day life in general, it can have a way of 
It can ha- have a way of, of distracting us, getting, getting our eyes off the main things, getting our eyes unfocused, where we can become distracted by, by a, many different things. And so here we see that the Apostle Paul is bringing forth reminders. And we're going to look at later in chapter 4 with the disagreements that were going on in the church that this church was already showing different fruit that would indicate they had forgotten things Paul had taught them in the past. So moving forward to verse 2. He now not only is giving a reminder, but the reminder is a warning. And this warning carries through this train of thought here all the way through this chapter. This is a warning. There's safety in heeding a warning. If you have a cliff here, the reason that they stamp a sign at the edge of the cliff, danger, don't come close to this, don't come near, don't come, don't cross this barrier, don't cross the line, and it stays there. Every time you go back, you're going to see the same warning, the same reminder. There's safety in heeding this. There's safety in Paul re-illustrating again what he's about to tell them. So verse 2, he has three lookout statements. Look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, and look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Now these aren't three different groups. He's actually referring in all three of these to the Judaizers who were coming into the churches. We see not only in the book of Acts, we see the damage that they did in the book of Galatians as well. How they were seeking to lure people away by adding the law back in with our Lord Jesus Christ. Where it was, yes, faith in Jesus plus a little extra. He says, look out for the dogs. This word dog would have been a very derogatory term back in this day that was used not in the context of the household family pet, but in the mangy mutts that would have roamed around the streets. The pestilence that would have either potentially attacked people or would have been driven away by force. The evildoers, like our Lord says of the Pharisees, whitewashed, looking good on the outside, but full of dead men's bones on the inside. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Now, this is going to tie into what he says in the next verse here. The mutilation of the flesh. The Jews called themselves the true circumcision. They are the circumcision party. That was something they had coined for themselves. Well, the Apostle Paul, is, if you look into verse 3, is saying, we are the circumcision. He's taking that title, applying it to true saints, and is essentially reversing it on these Judaizers, saying, the mutilators of the flesh. Which, if you'll remember, back on Mount Carmel with Elijah is what the heathens were doing. They were mutilating their flesh in sacrifice to their God, seeking for some kind of a response. So this here, are there are three jabs. The Apostle Paul is giving three jabs at the Judaizer party here. And now as we continue, for we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh as opposed to the Judaizers who did. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless, 
But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For His sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. So the Apostle Paul is making a contrast here of his his old life. His old life, his successful old life, some might add, successful in his religion. He He was vehemently just pursuing this passion. He had dedicated his life to it, and yet the Apostle Paul can tell us, even from Romans, we see Romans chapter 7, the fact that the law doesn't work. The law doesn't bring true righteousness. The law doesn't bring true righteousness before God. And so here the Apostle Paul is re-emphasizing this and continues on. And be found in him, in verse 9, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. So that's very important. Because the Apostle Paul, this whole stream of thought, these aren't little juts of of thought that the Apostle Paul is just kind of, you know, sectioned together. This is one flowing theme here. The Apostle Paul is about to exhort this church at Philippi to desperately pursue the finish line, to strain after the finish, to press on, to press forward. But before he does that, he wants to fix their eyes back on Christ and ultimately where their justification comes from. This righteousness before God that depends on faith. So he's emphasizing the doctrine of imputed righteousness before he then gets into man's responsibility. Lest any of them think, oh, now he's giving us the key to righteousness. Or now he's giving us the key to justification, blamelessness before God. So he illustrates this first and foremost before going any further. So now we're caught up with the context. We're going to come back to verse 10 here in just a second. But before we move there, what I would like you to do is move across the page to verse 18. I want to give the big picture perspective of what the Apostle Paul is trying to communicate here and kind of the backstory of what is surrounding this, this time in Paul's life. Not only the life of the Apostle Paul, but also the life of this church. There were key things that triggered this response from the Apostle Paul. Looking in verse 18, the Apostle Paul says, For many of whom I have often told you, and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Now there's conversation regarding this verse. Because the clear question is, for many. Okay, who are the many? Who is he talking about here when he says many? And I I think that to get a better understanding of what the Apostle Paul is trying to communicate, I actually have here, I have the King James Version rendition of this passage. It is my current understanding, my belief, that in accordance with the evidence we have here and other places in Scripture that I will point to, that 
these many he's talking about are turncoats of the faith. These are people who once ran with Paul, who once walked side by side with the Apostle Paul himself, those who he would have even called brother or sister, who have now gone astray, have left the faith, and have abandoned the Apostle Paul. So let me read the King James Version rendition here for you really quick. He says, For many walk. Now you're going to notice that word, walk. The ESV puts the walk down near the end of the verse where it says walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. But I believe more accurately, the King James Version renders it, For many walk, of whom I have told you often, and now tell you even weeping, that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ. For many walk. I believe this here, when he says many walk, is referring to exactly what he describes in 2 Timothy chapter 3 when he says, having a form of godliness but denying its power. Where these people claim to be holy, or at one point claimed to be holy, and yet deny its power by their lives. Again, 2 Timothy 1, this was no unfamiliar thing to the Apostle Paul to be betrayed, to be abandoned. He says, you are aware that all who are in Asia turned away from me. And do you guys know who it says in chapter 4 turned away from Paul? He even gives a specific name. Does anybody know? Sorry? Not Alexander. 2 Timothy chapter 4, there's a specific person who abandons the Apostle Paul. Demas, that is correct. For Demas, now this is important, in love with the present world, has deserted me. Now look back to Philippians. Philippians 18 here, he gives this category for these many, but then look with me in verse 19. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. Their minds are filled with things of earth. The things that they're wrapped up in, the things that they love, the things that they care about. This this description here, the diagnosis from the Apostle Paul, is synonymous with the description and the diagnosis of Demas. He was in love with the world. So he abandoned the Apostle Paul. Now, this is a very important distinction to make here. That in verse 18, he's talking about turncoat Christians. Because let me ask you, brothers, sisters. Have, and I I presume many of you have. But have you experienced what it's like for this to happen to you personally, where you're walking side by side, presumably, with somebody who you thought was a well-saved brother or sister in Christ Jesus. And then all of a sudden, as though, you know, like you're storming the beaches of Normandy together and you're arm in arm and you're thinking we're doing this together and we're going the same way and then all of a sudden, bang! 
It's like they get blown away and they're gone. Have you guys ever experienced that? It has a way of shaking you back to reality. It has a way of reorientating your focus. What's really important here? You're walking along and maybe you're, you're kind of getting distracted and there's this thing over here and well that's important and your priorities are a little off and then bang, somebody's gone. You know, it's one thing if we could see it a mile away and oh yeah, you know, that person is clearly, they're, you know, they claim to be a Christian but their life doesn't tell that tale at all. But you guys know when it came to Judas, nobody thought it was Judas. When, when Jesus said, somebody's going to betray me, they, they didn't go, oh, uh, come on. I mean, we all know it's, it's Judas. It's so clear. You notice there's never any account of them saying, Judas, why, why couldn't you cast out the demons? Judas, why, why couldn't you do this or do that? Or, or Judas, why is Jesus so cold to you? Or why does he talk to you this way when he doesn't talk to us that way? Judas, why? There was none of that. Nobody had any clue it was Judas. That's what's most jarring. What's most shocking. And exactly what I believe the Apostle Paul wanted to have happen to this church. As we're going to see later in chapter 14, they were, they were having squabbles over things. Just petty things in the church that were causing divisions. And the Apostle Paul is saying, look, look at what's at stake. Don't you guys realize how serious this is? I mean, he says even with tears, you can feel just the emotion of the Apostle Paul as he's, he's looking on to these people who, you know, once perhaps were running well and now they're like school children playing in the sandbox in some disagreement. It's like, what are you guys doing? Are you serious? That's the focus? That's the thing here that that we're going to pinpoint, that's the thing that we're really going to give our attention to and our, and, and our, our, our heart and our soul and our zeal to and our passions. And so, look with me. Look with me down to chapter 4. Chapter 4, the Apostle Paul says, I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Now, this word, entreat, can also be rendered admonish, to exhort, or even to beg. This is, this is not a light word. This is not a flimsy word. It, it, det- it, it depicts the desperation in the tone of the Apostle Paul. where He's so concerned for them. And we saw that at the beginning of chapter 3. Now, the Apostle Paul is concerned He's giving these reminders, these warnings, if you will, because he's concerned about them. He's seen what's happened in other churches. He's seen what's happened to other people that seem to run well and then detour and make shipwreck of the faith. Now, there are a few things that we can learn from this passage here regarding this disagreement. A few things that I think it's important to make. First, this was something that was public. It was something that was public enough to make its way all the way back to the Apostle Paul who's in prison. 
tells you one of two things. Either he got the word from a letter that was sent in response, or somebody told him in person. But either way, this had become such a dire situation that they were consulting the help of the Apostle Paul. They were wanting the Apostle Paul to do something here. The second observation is that this was something, this was just a a petty disagreement. So how do you come to that conclusion? Because if it was something important that actually had to do with the truth of Scripture or some sort of practical application of Scripture in their day-to-day lives, the Apostle Paul would have simply explained it like he does in other places in his epistles. There's a disagreement. There's a misunderstanding. There's an improper application of truth. The Apostle Paul's right there. Bang! There it is. Here's what you need to be doing. This is what you're doing now. Here's the correct way. The fact that he doesn't do that can tell us that this disagreement was not biblical, it was not founded upon spiritual matters, and it was not founded upon godliness or holiness or anything really of importance. So this thing is public, and this thing is not spiritual. It's not biblical. Now look with me into verse 3. He says, Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Now, the true companion, the word here that gets translated as true companion, there's discussion as well uh, with regard to this, this name or this word. Is he talking to a specific person or is it a group of people? Is he talking to the church as the companions? There, there, there are different views. But that's besides the point. The bottom line is someone or someones are dropping the ball here. Presumably somebody in leadership. I mean, this letter in chapter 1 is addressed to the Philippians, the deacons, and the elders. Or I have that reversed, the elders and the deacons. And so you have someone here who the Apostle Paul is needing to exhort, help these women, which presumably they should have already been doing. So there are a bunch of balls being dropped here. Not only that, the women themselves. He says, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel. These women could have very well been some of the charter members at Philippi. The fact that they have been there since before the Apostle Paul's imprisonment for the gospel. He's saying these women were side by side with me, which we're going to see later, does not disqualify from warning. The Apostle Paul has things to say for the mature later on. But now you have the big picture. We're going to go back to verse 10. Chapter 3, verse 10. But now you see the big picture of what's happening here. Where these words don't just come out of a vacuum. This would have been at the forefront of the Apostle Paul's mind. Troubles from without and troubles from within. There are problems here. There are dangers. And so he's giving them these reminders and these warnings. So look with me at verse 10. This is where he begins the consolidation of the Christian life. They're they're all over the place. They're focusing on the wrong things. And so the Apostle Paul is going to narrow in their focus and oversimplify 
he's going to incredibly simplify the Christian life to its bare bones right here in these two verses. And you will notice that in these two verses, he does it in chronological order from start to finish. Point one, point two, point three, point four, point five. He goes all the way down the list. Starting in verse 10. That I may know Him. Knowing our Lord Jesus Christ. Knowing our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the beginning of every Christian life. Yes, it doesn't stop there. It continues on. This is the beginning, the middle, and the end of the Christian life. As the Apostle Paul was just illustrating how much value there is in knowing Christ. And relinquishing everything in order to have more of Him. And more of Him. And more and more and more and more. Nevertheless, that's how the Christian life begins. is coming to a saving knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. That I may know Him. Then he says, and the power of His resurrection. The power of his resurrection. If you would, turn with me to Romans chapter 6. The Apostle Paul gives what I believe is a very, very clear definition of what he is talking about here. It is not some mystical thing. It is not some hard to understand thing. It's actually very, very clearly set forth for us in Romans chapter 6. Look with me starting in verse 4. He says, We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead, the resurrection, raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. That's what he's talking about here. Look with me further down, verse 5. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. So there you have it. A very, very clear definition of the resurrection here. The walking in the newness of life. Of entering into the power of his resurrection. Now, it's important to make that distinction because he's going to talk later in verse 11 about a different resurrection. But, immediately after, you have knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, knowing Him, the power of His resurrection, living in the newness of life by the power of the Holy Spirit, and immediately afterwards, he says, suffering. Sharing in His sufferings. Sharing in the sufferings of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is not an unfamiliar phraseology for the Apostle Paul. Not an unfamiliar way of preaching or teaching. You know, some people might think, well, you know, they'll kind of learn that on their own. But the Apostle Paul was militant in the way that he trained the new Christians. And we see that in the book of Acts in the 14th chapter when he's strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. At the very beginning, he wants them to know, great, you guys are here, continue on to the end, but I want you to know it's going to be hard. It's going to be difficult. 
We see even our Lord Jesus talking about the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few that we see in Matthew chapter 7. We see 1 Peter as well, who mentions in chapter 4, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. And so this suffering... The Apostle Paul is wanting to bring the saints back to the basics. They've gotten off track. There are these distractions. There's this division in the church. The Apostle Paul is looking at catastrophes happening outside and is now looking at what could turn into massive corrosion inside the church. And so he's taking them and he's bringing them back to the basics. He's making it extremely simple. You start with Jesus. You enter into the newness of life. And then from there, that power gives you the strength you need to endure the suffering. It's coming. There's going to be suffering. And then he takes this suffering to the nth degree. He brings it to his conclusion. Becoming like him in his death. Death itself. The Apostle Paul willing, if need be, to go even to the very cross The same cross that Jesus died upon. Now verse 11 here, very important. That by any means possible, by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. He's saying whatever it takes, Anything it takes. He's bringing them all the way back to the basics and he's condensing down the Christian life and he's saying, here's where you start. You you enter into the power of the resurrection. You come to the suffering. And then from there, anything it takes to get to the finish line. Anything, absolutely anything, by any means possible that I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Whatever it costs. Later he's going to exhort them, imitate me. Think this way, be this way, live this way, anything it takes to live our Christian life that way. I mean, brethren, we we know the experience. Some of us here coming into the Christian life and you're just so full of of energy and joy and exuberance and you just feel like, I'm going to conquer the world for Christ. And then, what can happen? Well, you know, maybe... Maybe that didn't happen the way I expected it to. And, and you know, maybe there was this discouragement and, and now there's this distraction and, and, and this thing over here now. And, brother, I just asked the question, are, is this you now? Is this the way that you think about the Christian life now? If the Apostle Paul were to come in here, would, would this be his assessment of you now? That you are all out. That you're resolved. You have the same resolve of the Apostle Paul that whatever it takes by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. I mean, brethren, I I ask you as, as individuals, but also as a church, these are questions that we have to ask ourselves. 
But now look with me here as he says, attain the resurrection from the dead. Now this is obviously a different resurrection than he was talking about before. The resurrection from the dead here he's referencing to is the resurrection that is reserved for the sons and daughters of God. Those who have been redeemed. Those who have been saved. And you say, well, where do you come to that conclusion? Well, the fact of the matter is, is everybody is going to make it to the resurrection. We're told in John 5, our Lord says, Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. We see clearly that there are two resurrections set forth there, the resurrection of life and the one of judgment. That is what the Apostle Paul is talking about here. Attain the resurrection of life. The resurrection from the dead. Brethren, the stuff that the Apostle Paul is talking about here, this is by no means unfounded. Our brother read from from Revelation chapter 7 earlier. And I'd have, you, I'd have you turn with me to Revelation chapter 21. Revelation chapter 21. Brethren, this is not something we want to mess around with. This is, this is not something that we can afford to be half in and half out. How, how much can I, you know, how, how I can, you know, cling into Christ, but, but how far can I get my foot over the line before I'm too far? How, how far can I reach out, you know? I, I, I come to church and I, and I, I go to the prayer meetings and I, I read my Bible and everything else, but, but then I've got my me time and, and you know, I, I, I do different things and, you know, I know they're not the most profitable, but, you know, I've got my convictions and Brandon, we cannot afford to see how close we can make it to the edge without falling over. This is not an experience that anyone will want to miss. Look with me into Revelation chapter 21 and we're going to be reading, well, just look at verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Oh, we're headed for the wedding feast, brethren. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. No more tears. No more death. 
Brethren, is, is this something that you give thought to? This was clearly at the forefront of the Apostle Paul's mind. This clearly was kept in right in front of his eyes. He clearly thought on this much. Departing to be with Jesus. But brethren, do you even think about that? What it will be like when I'll never sin again. I'll never feel conviction for sin ever again. I will never desire anything wrong ever again. I'll never cry. I'll never feel sorrow or pain. There will never be loss. They will never be as as loving as God is. We will never experience God's discipline again the way that we do here when we sin and when we're sluggish. Never again. Replaced in its place. Joy everlasting. Look with me. Verse 5. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, write this down. For these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. Brethren, can you imagine when we hear those words? When we're actually there and we can see it with our own eyes. And we hear, it's done, it's finished, you've run, well done, welcome in, it's over, no more. No more sadness. No more sorrow. Your striving is done. Welcome in to the rest of your master. Oh, brethren. It's done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the springs of water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage. And I will be his God and he will be my son. The spring of the water of life without payment. Brother, we all have our limitations here, spiritually speaking. We will all get to a certain degree of understanding or knowledge or revelation even like the Apostle Paul in terms of the understanding of the revealed Word of God and our closeness of our relationship to our Lord Jesus Christ. But here it's like all restrictions have been removed. There is a well here and it is deep. Dive in it as far as you possibly can go. And you'll never even come close to the bottom. This is what awaits us. The joy and the pleasure of knowing our Lord Jesus Christ to increasing degrees throughout eternity of eternities. Increasing joy. Increasing pleasure. Increasing happiness. This is what the Apostle Paul wanted them to fix their eyes on. Now come back with me to Philippians. Philippians chapter 3. 
This is, that was the condensed version of the Christian life. You know Him. Newness of life. You enter into His sufferings. You die as He died. And then eternity with Him in glory. That's what we're running for. That's the motivation here. And now we see, looking down the page, verse 12. The Apostle Paul says, Not that I have already obtained it, or am already perfect. He begins this next section with a realistic view of his own present condition and an appeal to enter into the lives of these people. He's saying, look, brethren, brothers, sisters, I'm not perfect. I haven't made it yet. I have not arrived. I still have my faults. I still have my failures. I still sin. I have not arrived yet. I can enter into the struggle that you all are experiencing here. And we all need a healthy view of self. We all need to be able to run inventory and realize that we're so much more immature than we otherwise thought we were. But look here. But I press on to make it my own. Or once again, as the KGV says, I follow after. This is to put to flight, to run swiftly in order to catch a person or a thing. Because Christ Jesus has made me His own. I'm owned. I'm possessed. He bought me. He's paid for me in His own blood, with His own sacrifice. And like we're going to celebrate later, His death on the cross. He bought me. He paid for me. You know, the Apostle Paul is the one who titled himself the chiefest of sinners. And yet he still chose me. He still owns me. Brothers, verse 13. I do not consider that I have made it my own. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind. You know, a runner who stops running is no longer a runner. The Apostle Paul is prone to use these athletic illustrations, and here again, the terminology he's using is illustrating the runner. Forgetting what lies behind. It was not sufficient for the Apostle Paul, and he's emphasizing this to the church, it's not enough to say, I have run. It's not enough to look back at our prior successes or even failures and to say, well, this, that, or the other thing. I used to be this way. I used to run hard. I used to be desperate. I used to be more zealous or more fervent. I used to be more sold out for our Lord Jesus Christ. I used to be more zealous for perishing souls. I used to be more resolved. The Apostle Paul says, forget all of that. Forgetting what lies behind The obvious question, brethren, is are we still striving today? Are we still striving now? Do we take this seriously in our lives today, here and now? He says, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. 
You see, the Apostle Paul was not running in vain. He had his eyes set on that resurrection. And he said, I'm I'm straining after it. This word here, literally translated, is like stretching yourself as far as you possibly can. As far as you possibly can. Running as hard as you possibly can. Straining. Straining forward. I mean, it's just, he, it's like he's exhorting the brethren, keep going. Don't run out of gas now. Don't get distracted now on these petty little things, these disagreements. Look at what is at stake for all of eternity. Strain after it. Run after it. Keep fighting. Like the world and the flesh and Satan himself were all pulling against Paul. And he says, I'm straining forward. I don't know how many of you have read Pilgrim's Progress or listened to the audiobooks, but there's a part where Christian is just starting his Christian life and his family and even his friends, they're trying to stop him. They're trying to prevent him from going. They're trying to convince him to stay. And it says that he puts his fingers in his ears and he runs headlong crying, life, life, eternal life. Brethren, did, we, did you start that way? That initial thrust where you had to break from the world and relinquish relationships and whatever cost it, it whatever it cost you. Or, do we still think that way now, brethren? Is that still the way we approach our Christian life now? Or have we just, you know, kind of got into this groove and we're kind of into the flow of things and I'm just going to try and ride this wave on into the finish line? You know, it's interesting because uh, this brother, I think, if I'm not mistaken, he's, I, I don't know how many of you guys recognize the name Francis Chan, but he gave a, a physical representation that I, I will never forget of lackadaisical Christians, where, you know, you have the balance beam event at the Olympics. And so he actually had a balance beam on the stage. And he, he gets up on there. And you know, they're, they're meant to do all of these tricks and these flips and these somersaults and all of these different maneuvers that would break my body into six different ways. But he gets on there. And, and he's describing how some Christians live their lives. Well, I, I, I'm just going to have my, my three kids or my four kids and, and, and they're all going to be homeschooled and I'm going to go to this church and I'm going to sit in the same seat every Sunday and I'm not going to do anything too dangerous. I'm not going to do anything that's, that's a little too risky, you know, and, and I'll give my 10%. And, 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 and slowly, I can come around the pulpit to illustrate this, slowly he, he's crouching down toward the balance beam. And, and by the end of it, he is now laying down around with his arms wrapped around the balance beam by the end of this little presentation he was giving. And then he slides off. And you know how when they finish, they, they throw their arms up. And so that's what he did. And so he slides onto the ground and then he quickly stands up and goes, like, ta-da! His point was that's how many Christians live their lives. They, they just want to 
drift off into eternity. Oh, and then, Lord, don't make my death too difficult. If I could just be, you know, if I could just kind of go off into my sleep. And, and you're just hugging the balance beam the whole time. And then you get off like, I did it, Lord. Here I am. I, I, I mean, I was there. I was on the balance beam. What's my score? The Apostle Paul here is calling for the utmost dedication. Whatever it takes. He didn't care. Expense to his body? Doesn't matter. This body's temporary. I'm going home. The, the, the stonings and the beatings and the imprisonments and the abandonments and the, the betrayals and the whippings and the stonings and the shipwreckings. And to him, by any means necessary, Lord, by any means, he ran with his eyes fixed on the prize. He had his, lo- his eyes fixed on the finish line. In high school, I used to run track and I was running the 200 meter and, and and everything was going great, and I actually finished first in my heat. But in that last hundred meters, as I was coming down the stretch at the very end, I was still out in first. I cocked my head back to see where second place was. And my dad was standing there right on the sidelines, right, right at the finish line, so he was watching this. So I cocked my head back just to see where he is for just a split second, and then I keep running. And my dad said, you know, you lost ground when you looked back like that. He started to gain on you as soon as your posture broke. As soon as my whole focus wasn't about the finish line and getting there as quickly as possible in the most expedient manner possible, as soon as I was distracted for even a moment, what's this guy doing over here? Started to lose momentum. That was all it took. That was all it took. And the things that they're dealing with here as well. Little squabbles, little disagreements. I mean, brethren, can you, can you imagine if there was some disagreement amongst this church? And I'm not saying that there is. If there was some, there was some disagreement or there was some sort of jealousy or some sort of rub or, or something... And then all of a sudden, for whatever reason, you know, like they dealt with in World War II, where a bomb drops into the ceiling and bang! Immediately, we're all in glory together. And, and we walk in there arm in arm. Like that imagery, can you even picture it, brethren? And at that moment, how... Our perspectives, everything just realigns. How things that we put so much time and energy into just account for nothing. They did nothing for us. Things that we have dedicated literal years of our life to and bang, it's done, it's over and it's gone. We don't keep it. We don't take it. Whatever it might be. You know what the thing is for you, potentially. That thing that maybe you're clinging to, you're holding on to, that you're dedicating time and energy into. Or, or perhaps it is some interpersonal thing where, uh, well, they, they didn't greet me or, or they did something and then and they were in eternity. And it's just like, oh, that was so menial. 
that was so small and I made it so big. And, you know, the sad thing is, is with all the distractions in this world, the temptation is not only to make small things big, but to make big things small. Brethren, we want to run this race seriously. So now look, look with me. He says, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Now this is the exhortation and the warning for complacent Christians. He says here in verse 15, let those of you Let those of us who are mature think this way. He's addressing the mature first and foremost. Because if the mature start to slip, if the mature start to give way and start to become complacent or sloppy, how on earth are the immature going to survive? Look with me down further in the page here. Verse 17, brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Now, I think, I think that's a challenging thing to ask. That's a challenging thing to say. Because first and foremost, obviously, it should call into question who are we imitating? Who are we imitators of? Who are we seeking to knit ourselves to? Who are we seeking to be around? What do we let come into our ears and our eyes, into our minds? What what do we allow in? Who is influencing us the most? And then I think another natural question is, are we living lives worthy of imitation? Because clearly the Apostle Paul expects that somebody there is living a life worthy of expectation. I think a clear question is, would the other people in the congregation find your life worthy of imitation? Do you live in such a way like the Apostle Paul is describing here, where you are all out for the finish line? Everything you have, as fast as you could possibly go. Or are you the Christian that's, well, you know, I... I don't want to do anything too crazy. I don't want to, I don't want to do anything too, too, too dangerous. I, I, I don't want to... I mean, brethren, are we living lives that say we actually believe this? Are we living lives that say we actually believe that glory is going to be that glorious? And I'll, I'll end it with a song I presume you guys know. It's titled, When It's All Been Said and Done. Just the first two stanzas go, when it's all been said and done, there's just one thing that matters. Did I do my best to live for truth? Did I live my life for you? When it's all been said and done, all my treasures will mean nothing. Only what I've done for love's reward will stand the test of time. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, I, I ask, Lord, give us more of this zeal. Give us more of this energy and more of this resolve of the Apostle Paul. No matter where we are in the Christian walk, no matter where we are in the Christian life, no matter what stage we've come to, what part of the progression, no matter how much time you have left for us, Lord, which none of us knows, I ask, Father, would you give us a greater zeal to run hard, to run hard, to run well, and to run all the way to the finish line. In Christ's name and for his glory, I ask. Amen.